It's the 365 Days of Astronomy podcast. Coming in three, two, one. Astronomy Cast, episode 553. What we're looking forward to in 2020. Welcome to Astronomy Cast, our weekly facts based journey through the cosmos, where we help you understand not only what we know, but how we know what we know. I'm Fraser Kane, publisher of Universe Today, and with me, as always, Dr. Pamela Gay, a senior scientist for the Planetary Science Institute and the director of CosmoQuest. Hey, Pamela, how are you doing? I am doing well. I survived our 40 hour yeah. stream last weekend, and um, we are doing good and. Uh, it's it's looking like 2020 has the potential to be a explosively awesome year. Oh, <laughs> hope in the good way. All right. Well, it's hard to believe it, but we survived another trip around the sun. Now it's time to take a whole the whole journey all over again, but with new news. Let's take a look at some of the space and astronomy stories that we're looking forward to in 2020. Uh, yeah. We, of course, the big news is that Betelgeuse is definitely probably dimming. Yes. Uh, so, so there's no probably on it. Betelgeuse is currently dimming uh, to the point that it is a lower magnitude, a lower brightness, which is a higher number magnitude because yep. astronomers do stuff backwards. Well, no, um, no. It all just depends on whether you're above or below the zero. Yes. But I guess, uh, no, it is a, is a bigger – hold on. The, the the brightness larger the number the, the fainter the object right right and so like the brightest thing in the sky is like minus twenty what seven the sun or something like that magnitude yeah yeah I don't remember minus twenty three yes it's yeah the sun. yeah so, so um, Betelgeuse the uh, top if you are Orion right shoulder if you are looking at Orion his left shoulder. Uh, that top red star, that top red shoulder, had been the brightest star in the constellation, had been one of the top brightest stars in it the sky. top ten, yeah. And currently it is fainter than Aldebaran, the bright orange eye of Taurus, the bull. And in the last 50 years of modern measurements, we have never seen it this faint. Now, this is a supergiant star. They do vary in magnitude. This particular star has a number of different ways that we see it growing and dimming. Um, but because it's one of the most likely to go boom, supernova, explode stars in the sky, all of the astronomers are like, please explode. <laughs> and there's a whole lot of headlines floating around right now saying astronomers think Betelgeuse will explode. No, we don't think it's going to explode. We are wishful. We are yeah. hopeful. It is doing something we've never seen before. We know it has the potential to go boom. We know it's about 9 million years old and that stars this size generally go boom within the first 10 million years of their lives. 
but that doesn't mean it's going to go boom. And in fact, January is is a important month because if it follows its normal behavior and is simply getting fainter than it normally gets right now, we will see it begin to increase in brightness, which means its magnitude number will go down towards zero. Um, we we will begin to see that change. Um, Actually, it's already below zero, so it will simply go even lower. We will see that change in January. Now, if we don't see that, you're going to see a whole lot of astronomers going, please burn, please go boom, do something. Because we are owed a visual brightness supernova in our galaxy. Galaxies like ours in general should have a massive supernova Every hundred years or so, we haven't had one in a while unless yeah. it was the other side. 1600, of the bulge. 1674, 1624. Kepler's supernova was the last yeah. one that we saw in the galaxy. And that's really unusual. Like there should yeah. have been, and there probably were, they're just on the other side of the disk and we did, couldn't see them. But, but the closest one was 1987A in the Large Magellanic Cloud. And that was 170,000 light years away. And that, is, that sucks. And, and there's a couple of things that I've been seeing in, in the news that I want to highlight as just wrong. So one of the things that I've been seeing a lot of stories say is telescopes around the world, the most mighty instruments are being turned towards Betelgeuse. No, they're not. <laughs> Betelgeuse is stupidly bright. If you pointed an eight meter telescope, even at it at its faintness right now to image it, it would do bad things to your detector. Now, there are people that, that you can block down the light, you can spread it out with a spectrograph, but you don't need an eight-meter telescope to be doing this stuff. It became the first star to have its disk at a low-resolution image, yeah. and that was done with a one-and-a-half-meter telescope back in the, I believe it was late 90s. Do you want to hear something crazy? And so this can this can account for some of the, the variations that are happening with it. Um, yeah. It has cells on the surface. Like, you know, when you look at the, at the surface of the sun, you see the little blobby cells, mm-hmm. the little granules, right? So yeah. Betelgeuse can have cells that are 60% the size of Betelgeuse. Yeah. So, and Betelgeuse extends out almost to the orbit of Jupiter. And so you it, it extends past the orbiter. Well, it depends. If you put, it depends. It on, depends on where it is in its pulsation. Cycle. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and so it grows and shrinks like uh, like mere variable stars. Good it has these. Variable. Yeah, it has these these cells on its surface that that blob around, and so and it's blowing out gas and dust. It's thought right that it should blow uh, about the mass of the sun in its lifetime out in space. Now, what we need at this point is color information. Because the way a star changes in magnitude as a pulsating variable, you see changes in color linked with changes in size, which are linked with changes in brightness. And it all interplays quite nicely. Now, if the temperature isn't, if the color and temperature are the same thing, uh, isn't changing the way we would expect for a pulsating variable star, that is new information, that it is even weirder than before. I haven't been able to find high-quality color data yet. And this is another one of those things that isn't getting talked about a lot. And there have been a few good Twitter feeds, but I haven't seen a good analysis in, in the mainstream media yet. 
And the data that's getting pulled for Betelgeuse is getting pulled from the American Association of Variable Star Observers, massive and amazing database. And this database consists largely for this object of naked eye observations of people standing out in the driveway going, <laughs> right. okay, Looks a little dimmer. how bright is Betelgeuse compared to all the surrounding stars? And so while this is really good data, the person-to-person variations are huge, yeah. which means you can't just download the data and use it as is. You have to do statistical analysis of people over time, pull everything up to a mean, And in fact, they initially, people who were just pulling the data down raw were like, oh, this is nothing special until they started making these corrections. Different people started making these corrections and were like, oh, expletive, this is actually fainter than we've seen. There are a few people that have good photoelectric. This is digitally measured brightnesses. Mm -hmm. Ed Guinan at Villanova University is one of them. That's the one I saw Um, too. But we need more color information because knowing how bright or faint it is compared to other stars doesn't offer us temperature, which is what we really need to know if it's really behaving out of the normal. Well, please, people, please color information public somewhere. What we really need is neutrino observations. That would tell us if it's, you know, on its way out, but that is impossible. Well, so the neutrino informations are only uh, slightly ahead of the go boom light brightness yes. information. Yeah, you get a couple and, and of minutes. Here's, and here's the thing is when Betelgeuse does decide to go, whether it be tomorrow, please, 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 or a million years from now, which would be really sad, uh, when it does decide to go, it will be observable with the technology we have today in all the colors of the electromagnetic spectrum, so all colors of light, but it will also potentially be giving off detectable gravitational waves and it will be giving off neutrinos. So this will be something that we can study across particle physics, gravity physics, and light. Um, When you think about like pictures of the Crab Nebula, which was in 1054, it's 10 times closer yeah. Can you imagine how yeah. what it will look like if it when it goes off? Not so, if. So they're when. saying it will get to magnitude minus ten potentially. It could rival the full moon. Yeah, it, it will pixel for pixel be brighter than the full yes, moon. Yes, but it won't be the same size. Right, and it will be ten times brighter than Venus. <laughs> and Venus, if you know where to look, you can see as a daytime object. Mm-hmm. This means that the supernova will be a daytime object. Oh, yeah. For a year. Please go boom, Betelgeuse. Yeah. Please. I know you don't actually care what I wish, what I hope, what I desire, but Betelgeuse. And for anyone who still lives in the Betelgeuse system, we apologize (laughs) for the horrific disaster that we are uh, hoping will happen to your system. But if you live, if you orbit a red supergiant uh you've had a bad time for a long time that's a terrible terrible place to live so i don't think we have to worry about any civilizations you know to having a rough go of it when their star explodes but 
so, I mean, the reality is, is that we are hoping that Betelgeuse is going to explode, but we have no idea what's going to happen. And we will just wait. And most likely it's going to increase in brightness again. And then maybe 100 years from now, we'll go, wow, Betelgeuse is dimmer than we've seen in 100 years. And then at some point in 100,000 years or so, someone's going to go, wow, Betelgeuse just exploded. And and I see in the chat that AstroWise is asking, are, are neutrino detectors directional? And an individual neutrino detector is not directional. It simply goes neutrinos, no neutrinos. But at this point in time, we have multiple neutrino detectors around the world. And by looking at the arrival time in different places, it starts to give us vague, vague directional information. It's never going to be accurate enough to say that that star did it. But statistically, if you see a a burst of of neutrinos and it's vaguely in the correct quadrant of the sky, um, you can link the two events, as we were able to do back with Supernova 1987. And like the Ice Cube Observatory in Antarctica is sort of the most sensitive machine ever to do this. And it has one cubic kilometer of ice that it's watching neutrinos explode in. and then you've got other ones as well around the world now so actually yeah. there's but it's i mean you get a couple of neutrino detections with a supernova going off and like there was a recent supernova um just a couple of, 2014 it was about 11 the closest one since supernova 87a supernova was about 11 million light years away in a nearby galaxy and no supernova no neutrino detections so they are so far the one has not gone off that's close enough beyond 87a for them to really detect us so so this is absolutely this new is, science this is 650 to 700 light yeah. years away it's kind of hard to measure the exact distance this means all you people who are like but but orion will no longer have a shoulder yes he will have a shoulder it will be a bloody nebula of a shoulder <laughs> it turns out taurus the bull is finally going to gouge him um, and as a longhorn, I'm okay with this. Right. Well, um, this whole episode is going to be about Betelgeuse if we don't uh, rein this yeah, in. Yeah, we should move on to other things. So yeah. January, the thing to look forward to in January is the rebrightening or not right. of Betelgeuse. Yeah. If and it doesn't get rebrighter, rebrightened, then then it's getting weird. Yeah. And yeah. I'm okay with that. Yeah. Um. So what are some, and let's just go, like, I don't, I don't think we want to go month by month. Let's just pick some, some events, some big events that you're excited about for, for 2020. So what's, what's the next big thing that you're excited about? So, so I'm always a fan of meteor showers. And um, in January, and unfortunately, this is during the AAS meeting, so I'll be down in Hawaii, which is a really weird statement. Normally, one doesn't say, unfortunately. Yeah. But Honolulu has a lot of light pollution. Uh, so there's going to be the Quatrid meteor shower. And uh, so here we're looking at a few meteors per hour. Um, we also are going to have the best at the end of the year, Geminids that we've had in a while. There's going to be a new moon. Perfect. And as someone who was born during the Geminids, I don't think about the astrology too hard because that hurts the soul. But I love the fact that I was born during a meteor shower. And this year is the year to go out and watch that meteor shower. Beyond that, this is the year I have decided I'm going to actually like 
try and get good-ish at astrophotography. I don't have the money to be mm-hmm. good. I'm aiming for good-ish. And there's some really cool events this year. We're going to have Jupiter and Saturn close enough. They're, they're going to be one-fifth the diameter of the moon apart, yeah. which means that in a really good camera lens, you're going to be able to resolve both of them yeah. ever so slightly side by side. And and that is also in December of next year. Apparently, I'm really excited about next December. Um, I've been keeping my yeah. eye on this event for for probably a decade now. I've been yeah. looking forward to this moment, this conjunction between Jupiter and Saturn, because, as you say, it's going to be one-fifth the diameter of the full moon, which means that in a uh, fairly high-power image, you're yeah. going to have both Jupiter and Saturn side by side in the eyepiece. Moons tangled together yeah. in foreground and background. Yeah. I mean, it's going to be some of the most stunning creative pictures I think that we will have seen in astrophotography, in planetary astrophotography in in a decade. So uh, this is a this is a big one. When's that happening? In D- December? That's uh, December 21st. Yeah. So, um, now, if you want to practice, and these are the kinds of events you really need to practice for, a cool thing that you can practice with that's much sooner is uh, Mars is going to pass behind the dark edge of the moon, which means uh, you'll be able to see this the sky glow of the moon in images where you're resolving Mars. And that's just kind of really cool. And being able to see Mars dip behind the lunar mountains it's just cool yep. it's just cool practice your astrophotography yeah. and that's february 18th so let's talk about um now i'm obviously there's there's a couple of eclipses there's going to be an annular yeah. eclipse uh so you know unusual uh combination of that let's talk about some missions in robotic space flight first and then we'll shift over to some human space flight so um uh, now we're getting uh, c- our closest uh, approach to Mars again, uh, sort of near the end of 2020, which means that we've got it's the perfect time. It's the window that you send things to Mars. And so yes. we've got uh, two really important missions that are going to Mars from NASA. It's the twin of curiosity. It's going to be the Mars 2020 rover, which I'm sure it's going to get a, a new name at some point. Um, and so it's going to be launching. And then you've got Europe's ExoMars mission, which is, consists of an orbiter as well as the Rosalind Franklin uh, rover, which I love as, as the name. Maybe. Um, ESA has been having the a bear of a time getting this parachute working. And so right. it could very well be. And, so, and they've actually, NASA has, has been helping them out. They've been letting them use yeah. their, they've got a test facility where they test out uh, parachutes on this sort of high-speed rail system to try and get the deployment working. They had a, a bunch of failures of their parachute systems. Yeah. So if they can't get this sorted out, they're, they're not going to be able to launch this year. And they're going to have to wait until the next launch winter, which will be like 2022. So... And, well, and this is one of those go. things where I really feel that delay is all right. <laughs> Mars eats rovers. Yes. It eats landers. It eats spacecraft that simply come nearby. Um, it, this is referred to as the Mars curse within the community. Yeah. The galactic ghoul. It, it's one of these things where, where Mars likes to remind us space is hard. And getting everything to work perfectly when you're landing on another world that 
has enough gravity that it's yanking things down at a good clip towards the surface, but not enough atmosphere that you can effectively break in the waves that we're used to. It makes testing and designing things here on our world with our atmosphere and gravity really, really hard. You have to take things extraordinarily high up in the atmosphere if you want to try and practice. And they just haven't had the successful tests. Now, this isn't for lack of trying. They have pulled together parachute experts from around the globe. They've done workshops. They're, they're doing everything they can. And I'm really hoping they pull this off. But if they don't have successful tests, I'm really hoping that they nope hard and give it another go around. Yep. Uh, this is the year that OSIRIS-REx is going to be grabbing its sample from uh, Bennu and uh, and making its – well, I think it makes its journey home in 2021. But this is the year yeah. we, get the, we, get the, we get the sample. Thanks in part yes. to all the work from our good friends at CosmoQuest. Yep. And we're looking at hopefully uh, in the new year we're going to see a um, – rehearsal of what that will look like as we have these uh, primary and secondary landing sites. One is towards the North Pole. The other is near the equator. Equator is much easier to get to. The polar site is much more interesting. But uh, both of them kind of have awful, nasty, horrible boulders and are kind of tiny and venues, nasty rocks all the way down. So I'm personally just looking forward to the rehearsal to see what we learn about, oh, gosh, when we get closer, it's even worse than we imagined. Or, hey, it's not that bad. Uh, But that is not the only um, mission that visited an asteroid. And we will get the sample back from Hayabusa 2, the Japanese spacecraft that... uh, Got up to all kinds of shenanigans with its with its asteroid Ryugu, and they're going to be. I love the mission planning on this. They are going to be ejecting their sample from a distance greater than the distance of the moon, flinging it towards Earth, where they expect it to come in over Australia. Right, and I just love the fact that orbital mechanics is that exact like you know it's that exact because yeah. homework assignments but to see it actually implemented is glorious it's glorious yes totally um we've got a couple of other missions oh the chinese uh who have been exploring the the far side of the moon uh yeah. they're going to be launching their Chang'e 5 mission and the goal here is to actually bring a sample back to earth from the moon and we are again watching the chinese step by step uh catch up catch up and and you know demonstrate how serious they are about about exploring the moon and and progressing the science they've now done things that that no one else has done and and this yeah. is the next step they've set up a a radio telescope on the far side of the moon they've got a um they've got a rover roving around on the far side of the moon and at the south pole so we you know they're serious and then next comes the sample and and this is where slow and steady really is showing that it wins the race. And we're going to talk more about this later in the episode. But I look at what they're doing systematically, calmly, on the timelines that work without a whole lot of, we're going to do such and such. Yeah, they're yeah, just yeah. getting stuff done at the rate that they're comfortable. 
And they're systematically checking off all the firsts Yep. and catching up to everything that we can do. And they're doing it alone because ITAR regulations here in the United States don't let them work with the U.S. largely. Yep. And it's it's awesome. I think everyone yeah. needs to be keeping an eye on what they're doing. They're, um, I mean, they're, this isn't going to happen this year, but they are in the process of, of building and launching their third uh, Tiangong space station. Yeah. It's going to be a much larger international space station with partnerships with many other countries. So when you look at that checklist, right, they've sent spacecraft to the moon. They've built, they've sent astronauts to space. They've built space stations. They have, so at this point now, they've done yeah. everything but land humans on the moon. And that's the plan. So just keep watching. And yeah, that's, that's all I've got is they're rocking it out. Yep. Uh, and then a couple of other missions as well. Uh, the uh, solar orbiter is going to be launching some more observations of the sun. Let's talk about the human. Actually, you know what? One other, and this isn't exactly, this is a robotic mission, but I just want to talk about Starlink. So they're planning on, I think, a launch every two weeks. Which is insane. Right. And, and we've talked about this before. There's so many mixed emotions about this mission because, on one hand, social justice says we need to bring internet to the entirety of Mm -hmm. the world in a way that can only be done with spacecraft because uh, as Philip Metzger has pointed out, you can't run fiber optics to every tiny Island in the Pacific. You can't run cables to every farmhouse in the American Midwest, all these remote individuals, whether they, they be uh, hunters in Canada or just, there's so many different things. The only way we're getting them internet is satellite internet. And power constraints, technology constraints means we can't do it with geosync satellites right now if you want to be able to do it affordably. And so at this point in time, we need Starlink. But Starlink wrecks ground-based images requiring more images than previously were needed to be taken to accomplish the same science. So we are slowing our ability to accomplish science mm-hmm. in the name of getting internet to rural populations and all the mixed emotions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And all so if it does, you know, I think I've, I've, I've hammered this regularly, right? If Starlink um, delivers on the promise of getting internet to people uh, you know, across the world and, and helps everybody be a part of the global community. Because yeah. really, if you aren't on the internet today, you are not part of the modern economy. It's true. You don't get, and so there's a digital divide of the haves and the have-nots, and you will be a have-not because you can't, you can't sell your goods, you can't buy goods, you can't educate your, your children in the new technologies. It is, you know, it's, yeah. it's absolutely required to be part of the modern society or just you know, not. And so it's this digital divide. And so if Starlink helps that happen, then the price that we will pay is that we will lose, uh, we will lose some of our access to the sky. Access in the sky will be more difficult. But yeah. if Starlink is used to ruin the skies and it's there to make bankers rich, then, then it's going to be uh, a catastrophe and an absolute yeah. insult. So 
let's hope that uh, the folks at SpaceX and, and Musk uh, stand up for what's right and do the right thing. Or we're going right. to get really mad. It's true. It's true. So let's talk about human spaceflight for 2020. So, so here again, all the mixed feels. I'll bet I, you if you go back and listen to this, episode, this part, it's going to sound very similar to what we did a year ago. Exactly. It's it's one of these things where uh, I I visited Kennedy a couple of weeks ago, uh, Kennedy Space Center down in Florida, uh, along with Susie, our producer, and Annie, one of my co-hosts over on CosmoQuest X on Twitch. Hi, Twitch. <laughs> uh, we we scheduled it thinking that we'd be able to see CRS-19, a SpaceX flight up to the International Space Station, as well as the Starliner test and possibly the SpaceX support test. We scheduled our trip back in August, which meant we actually saw zero launches of Kennedy. But we went to Disney World and we saw lots of launches there. They were just more fictional. Right. Star Wars launches. Uh, but... While we were at Kennedy and we did the the standard tour they have at the facility, one of the things that really got me was how much they're plugging Starliner and Artemis as American-made, American uh, industry, American, American, American. And there was only a side mention of SpaceX. And I need to do more research to try and understand why SpaceX isn't getting branded the same way as an American ship, because one of the lines that keeps coming up in in the standard NASA broadcasts with um, Starliner is we're going to be returning American astronauts from American soil on an American-made spaceship, um, and they ended it with before the decade is out, except now the decade is out and they haven't done it. Well, wait a second. Um, Does the decade end in 2019 or does the decade end in 2020? I guess it depends on who you talk to. Well, if you but, start from year one. But if you start from year zero. Who does? I does. Do you? I mean, it's a programmer, really? sure. But do you think humankind started the calendar at year zero? Do they call it year one? Well, it it should. <laughs> I Now, admittedly, I don't think there's a year zero CE common era. Yeah. But but anyways. Um, anyways. I really think that it's a bit concerning how much emphasis is getting put on Starliner first because Starliner recently had a not quite healthy test. Yes. They didn't make it to the International Space Station. And we've heard a lot of folks, even NASA administrators, coming out and saying, well, we don't think Boeing needs to do a second test because the rocket worked fine and everything that went wrong with the capsule an astronaut could have handled. And and this we don't need to do another test is is very different from where you see SpaceX casually blowing things up now and then and saying, okay, we're just gonna repeat this till we get it right. And I'm much more a fan of test until it consistently works and then use it with the peoples than rush to production. Yeah. And and so I really hope that we get human beings launching from American soil so that it saves us money that can get used for other stuff in the near future. I don't care if it's SpaceX or Space Launch Systems or Boeing. I do care about whether messaging makes it ahead of 
trial and proof of concept. I'm sure this whole thing has something to do with money, has something to do with lobbyists, has something to do with the establishment, and and this is just momentum. And yet there's only so long you can handle the withering hail of progress from SpaceX before you just start going under. So if if SpaceX needs to outcompete the established um, launch providers, then that's what they're going to do, right? Like, yeah. like when you when you compare the capabilities and just how far ahead SpaceX with the Crew Dragon already is to the steps that Boeing is taking with the Starliner, and you, you, yet you compare the amount of money that Boeing has charged, it's far more than what they charge for the SpaceX for the Crew Dragon. Um, yeah. They did a review and fairly recently on, on that. Um, it's, it's worse than that. Let, let's back it up half a step and just look at the scenery. We have SpaceX has designed their Crew Dragon to launch on their Falcon 9. Tried and true technology. They were originally designing the Orion capsule to launch on the Space Launch Systems, which is by Launch Alliance, which is a consortium of companies that includes Boeing and Lockheed. So far, Space Launch Systems is years and years behind development and billions of dollars over budget. Uh, Fairly recently in the grand scheme of spacecraft uh, innovation, a, a switch was made where they decided to fund Boeing to develop a Starliner, which would launch on the tried and true Atlas rocket, which is kind of like your go-to, you know it's going to work yeah. rocket. Yeah. And and so you see this step sideways and backwards with Starliner, which is a, okay, what can we build that will actually fit on this rocket that we already have? And And this wasn't where we thought we were going to be. We thought we were going to be just a few years ago with Space Launch Systems versus... Uh, SpaceX, two rocket suites, the Falcon series, the SLS series. And and now we have, because it was recognized Space Launch Systems is so far behind the gain, and they don't want to have just one spacecraft. We've made that mistake before with the shuttle series where we yep. only had one thing we could rely on. They want to have more than one thing that we can rely on. And that's wise, for sure. It, it is. Yep. And and Blue Origins is behind the game. Yep. Um there's there's no one else as far along. But Starliner is the Boeing, which is up on the horizon. Starship is far future coming to us from SpaceX, still being innovated. Space Launch Systems, which should already be flying, isn't. And it's all very confusing and... and <laughs> So, I so it all. Yeah. So, I mean, Space Launch, in theory, we will see the first flight of the Space Launch system at the end of 2020. That's currently the still on the docket. So we should see this year, we should see Crew Dragon take humans to the International Space Station. We might see Starliner take humans to the International Space Station, assuming they get these problems figured out with the with the launch last week. Yeah. We should see the space launch system do its first launch at the end of 2020, uh, uncrewed. Um, and, and then as the backdrop to this whole thing, we should theoretically see tests of the starship of the SpaceX starship, uh, 
do something orbital this year. Although, remember, I mean, we had the big reveal back in September, and Musk said it's going to be launching, it's going to go do its 20-kilometer hop in a couple of months. A couple of months went by. We're yeah. three months past, and and one of their starships kind of exploded. So it was fabulous. <laughs> so so it could be that we're still going to wait many months, maybe even years for the next starship to actually try and do its hop and and maybe years until it goes orbital. So I yeah. It's I a funny I, time. I I suspect that it will take them a long time to get it human rated. I suspect we will see because they are doing rapid prototyping across multiple sites and this is the big difference between SpaceX Boeing and, and Space Launch Systems, and as near as I can tell all the other people, is, is SpaceX does rapid prototyping, recognizing some of their prototypes are going to fail spectacularly, and and that's okay. For them, failure is an option as long as you learn from it. Yeah. And I, I have so much respect for that. So it's, I mean, I think, so place your bets then. What do you think is going to happen this year in human spaceflight? So does SLS fly? Uh, no. Okay. <laughs> does does Starship fly? I suspect it will fly. I am deeply concerned it will fly with humans before they do another test run. But we won't see a Starship fly this year to with humans on board. Not Starliner. Wait, sorry, Starship. Starliner. Starship we will not see with humans fly this year. We will probably see more testing of it. I don't know. Yeah. Um they they got the the Falcon Heavy to work and they can use a lot of the same tech. So yeah, I can see them doing LEO, low Earth orbit. Yeah, okay. I, 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 I'm, I mean, who knows, right? It's all, who knows yeah. what the future holds, but I'm super skeptical that they'll, they'll do, <laughs> that they'll do low Earth orbit. They'll, that they will successfully return a starship from low Earth orbit, but who knows? Um, so then do you think Crew Dragon carries astronauts to the space station? I do. Do you think Starliner does? No. Really? Wait, wait, hold on. Starliner is Boeing, isn't it? Yes. Dang it. Starliner versus Starship are going to break me. Do not name your products this closely together, people. Do not do this. <laughs> I, I think We that, can call it the CST-100 if you like. Oh, and we can man. call it the Super Heavy. I think Boeing will launch people on the top of an Atlas. I am concerned they will do it without more testing yeah i think we'll see it right by the end of the year i think we'll see a we'll see like a year from now we'll see a cst there you go a cst 100 um launched to the space station with humans on board and i think we'll see a, a crew dragon go in a couple of months from now so that's april that may matches what yeah. i'm thinking yep awesome well it's uh it's exciting, though. I mean, there's a ton, a ton, a ton of stuff happening this year, both astronomically, uh, robotically, and uh, human space explorationly. And so, no matter what, this is an incredible time to be watching this. I can't think of a time when there's been more going on. We casually mentioned. 24 launches of satellites, you know, carrying <laughs> telecommunication satellites to the entire planet, you know. Yeah. Uh, it's going to be a crazy year. I can't wait for us to awesome uh, catalog it and watch it and report on it for this entire year with you. Uh, 
all of our friends, all of the streams that we do. Uh, here's to a great 2020. And, and we will be coming to you next from the AAS meeting in Hawaii. Yeah. Where we're going to be working to bring you all the science. We fly all in like it. five all. days. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I believe that we are going to be skipping next week. Yeah. Um, just because AAS prep is going to eat us alive. Yes. But there will be a lot more to come, including uh, photos of the two of us together in one place. You heard it here. Um, before we go, are there any names this week? There are. Our show wouldn't be possible if it weren't for the generous contributions of so many of you through our Patreon program. Uh, if you would like to become a supporter of the show please consider helping us out at patreon.com slash astronomy cast. This is how we pay Susie. This is how we pay our hosting bills. And this is also how we get you more content. So this week, I would like to thank Jordan Young, Burry Gowan, Froda Tenaba, Ramji Anamathu, Andrew Palestra, David Trug, Brian Cagle, the giant nothing, Laura Kettleson, Robert Palazma, Corey Diwali, Paul Jarman, Les Howard, Joss Cunningham, Emily Patterson, and a blip in the universe. Excellent. All right. We'll see you next week, Pamela. See you later. Bye-bye. Across 10 years and more than 12 million downloads, we've brought you day after day of content. Thank you for making this possible. Now we've added a new way to donate to 365 Days of Astronomy to support editing, hosting, and production costs. Just visit www.patreon.com forward slash 365 Days of Astronomy and donate as much as you can. Share the podcast with your friends and send the Patreon link to them too. Every bit helps. As we head toward our 10th anniversary on January 1st, 2019, we have to ask, what in the cosmos do you want to hear about? Let us know by emailing us at info at 365daysofastronomy.org. Thank you. You are listening to the IYA 365 Days of Astronomy podcast. The 365 Days of Astronomy podcast is produced by the Planetary Science Institute. Audio post-production by Richard Drum. Bandwidth donated by Libsyn.com and Wizard Media. You may reproduce and distribute this audio for non-commercial purposes. Please consider supporting the podcast with a few dollars or euros. Visit us on the web at 365daysofastronomy.org or email us at info at 365daysofastronomy.org. This year we will celebrate the Year of Everyday Astronomers as we embrace amateur astronomer contributions and the importance of citizen science. Join us and share your story. Until tomorrow, goodbye. Goodbye.